Thank you so much. I'm Paige. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Paige. And, yeah, I know. I just wave. Hi. Um, I Words can probably not accurately express the gratitude that I have in my heart to be here with you guys today. I've never been to Cambridge, Ontario before. Never been to this church before. So many of you I've never, ever met in person before. And yet this feels like coming home. And the connections that I have had the privilege of, of making over the last few years are just indescribable. There's a, a depth of passion for recovery that I found in, in this little church or virtually or, and, and with some of the people that I've got to met that has enhanced my sobriety in ways that I, I could have never imagined. And, and so truly, I, I really am grateful to be here with you guys today. And, you know, when I was new, that was not my experience. And I, like, I don't, I don't know about you guys. I wasn't happy, joyous, and free to be here, you know. I didn't, uh, what did I drop? Some's falling. I got it. It's my holes. Uh, I'm just a mess. I was a mess when I got here. You know, spiritual awakening has happened, continues to happen, but still a bit of a mess. And, and actually, I just felt something on my heart talking about Charlie P. and, and his uh, recent passing. It just made me think of uh, something that's in uh, the doctor's opinion. And it's Dr. Silkworth, and he's, and he's describing the illness of alcoholism, and he's describing the physical allergy, and he's pointing to the spiritual solution that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then he gets a little defensive. And he says, if any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. Let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We have found nothing, nothing, which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. And when I first read that, I would read that as, ooh, Silkworth, the doctor, he's getting a, he's getting a little defensive about that whole spirituality thing. But then it was pointed out as a possible that what he is is affected by my alcoholism. See, never in my drinking life, in my drinking career, only an alcoholic is going to make a career out of it. Never once would I have thought that I would keep a doctor up at night with the way that I was living my life. Never once would I thought that I would affect somebody in that way. And so it's, it's a reminder that if the world were to write my eight-step list, it might look totally and radically different to what I have put pen to paper on, despite my best efforts. But by that same token... By that same token, I don't know who I will hurt and affect by my alcoholism. I do not know who I can help with my recovery. This man, Charlie, who just passed away this morning, he affected people around the world for years. And I really believe that is what I am called to do. And I don't mean me as in like I'm special. I'm not. I'm just a drunk that they thought they should pay a plane ticket for for some reason. I am just a drunk. And I feel that that is, that is what we're called to do. We get out of that darkness and into that light in our, our, our job. I shouldn't say our job because I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to tell you what I have done. But my job, my responsibility is nothing less than to be a light to those who do not know that there is a way out. A light to those who are in the darkness. And you might be in the darkness if you're new. You might be in the darkness if you've been in and out of this thing. Or you might be in the darkness if you've been around AA for a while and the magic is gone. My job is to be that light. My job is to be that demonstration. And it is none of my business who I help. I am to suit up and show up and be a demonstration of these spiritual principles. So if I say nothing of benefit 
tonight or on Saturday. Gosh, I hope I say something good in between those. A lot of opportunities to mess it up is what I was given, basically. But if I don't say anything of benefit, what I want you to know is here in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have a solution, a solution. We have one. There is an answer to your alcoholism. And if you have not found it, and if you have not, or you've lost that magic, what I want you to know, there is a way out, and our job is to help you. It's not a maybe, not keep coming back and hoping it'll happen. No, there is a solution. And I want to emphasize, it does not take long to get well. It does not take long for the miracle, for the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous to happen. It does take work. And that's, I mean, that's not good news. But the good news is, it does not take long to get well here does not take long. It doesn't take long if you've been in and out for decades. It does not take long if you've been drinking most of your life. It does not take long if you're new to this thing and you're like, why is there this girl up here talking? Like, what is this thing about? It does not take long if you've been here a long time and you don't know if this thing could really work for you anymore. It does not take long to get well. And when I got here, like I was saying, when I got here, I did not know what was wrong with me. I did not know that there was an answer to my problem. And I'll be honest with you guys, I was not grateful to be here. I was kind of hoping that I showed up to these like church basements or community halls, places like this, after a series of unfortunate oopsie doopsies and whoopsie daisies. You know what I mean? Like it was definitely not alcoholism. I, I definitely did not have alcoholism when I got here. I had a lot of andas. You know, I'm an alcoholic and I had a lot of andas. It was definitely my andas. You know what I mean? I also had a lot of yeah buts. I don't know if you guys had any yeah buts, but I'm oh, riddled with yeah buts. You know what I mean? And I came here and I would do this thing. Now, I know it's this thing that you wonderful, lovely people in Cambridge, Ontario would never, ever, ever do. It's called judging the speaker. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Um, but it is something that I did. And I did a lot of. And I would do this thing where I would hear somebody share. And I think, man, I'm, I'm way worse than that guy. I don't fit. I don't belong. This thing couldn't help me. And then I would hear the very next person share. And I would think, whoa, again, like, I don't fit. I don't belong. I'm, I'm not as bad as him. You know what I mean? I would look for all the ways that I was not one of you. I would look for all the ways that I, I, I didn't fit in. But it was as simple as it needed to be for an alcoholic of my type, which is, an overthinker, overcomplicator. I'm sure there's none of those in the room here tonight. Um, I just have a penchant for that. And, you know, my and is a my yeah buts. But on page 44 of our book, it makes it as simple as it needed to be. And just to summarize, well, actually, what it talks about is if when drinking we have little control over the amount we take, or I want you to know I'm an and, I'm not even an or, I'm an and. And, or, or, sorry, it says or. Uh, if we honestly want to, we find we cannot quit entirely. And what I came to find out, and it's that, it's lack of control and lack of choice. That's it. That is what makes me an alcoholic. See, what I was doing is I was com coming here and I was comparing my consequences of my drinking. And some of my consequences didn't match your consequences. I don't know. I didn't have a DUI. I didn't have a car or a driver's license. Um, I also, some of you are like, hey, I know you don't need those to get a DUI. And that is true. Um, <laughs> I was, looking, I, was looking at, uh, I was looking at some of those consequences, and I'm like, oh, I, I had never had a divorce. You need a marriage to have one of those, <laughs> turns out. 
Uh, and I didn't have one. I had, and I'm sure no one can relate to this, but I had a codependent alcohol and drug-fueled hostage situation that was in a dumpster that was on fire that was careening off a cliff that I called a loving relationship. So no, 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 I haven't had a divorce. We're good, we're good, happy to be here, you know? I had one of those, and I, and I, I was comparing all the, they lost houses, I never lost houses. Now, mind you, I was homeless. Now, homeless doesn't make you an alcoholic, but homeless makes you a bad roommate, um, right? And so I would, I would compare those things. But when I saw the symptoms of what alcoholism truly was, it hit me between the eyes and I could not deny who I was. And what I, when who I am and what I am is abnormal. And some of you are like, yes, we gathered. She's been here not even half an hour. We know she's abnormal, right? We got it. And what I mean by abnormal is I have a twofold abnormal reaction to alcohol. But I also have a twofold abnormal reaction to sobriety. And so my twofold abnormal reaction to alcohol, what happens to me when I take a drink of alcohol that does not ever happen to an al- a non-alcoholic is this. I take a drink and I experience oh, peace, serenity, ease. It's like my skin fits for the first time. See, I take a drink and I get a solution for life. I don't know what happens to non-alcoholics, but they have a drink and they get a little buzzy and, and enjoy the hockey game. Like I, don't, like, I don't know. What they experience is not what I experience. Now, I want to be quite frank with you guys. If that was all that was abnormal about me as an alcoholic and my reaction to alcohol, I wouldn't be here because I'd be out there doing that because that worked. That was magic. That was, the, that was it. But you see, the other thing that I have that is abnormal about me as an alcoholic So when I take that drink, there's something inside of me that kicks off, and it tells me more. And the more that I drink, the more that I have to drink. See, I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, but the the more that I drink, the thirstier I get. That does not not happen to me with Pepsi. I've never sat down in an evening and finished off 24 Pepsis in a row. Not once, right? See, I I take a drink, and, and I get that sense of ease and comfort, if even for a moment. And it tells me more. And the more that I drink, the louder that more gets. See, I take a drink, and that drink demands a second. And that second insists on four. And that four will not stop screaming until I have had eight. And that eight will tell me, you need 16, you cannot stop. And I drink, and I drink, and I drink, and I cannot control the amount I take. I overdrink. I miss the mark time and time again. And see, non-alcoholics, they don't know what that's like. See. Here's, here's this thing that is baffling to me. See, a non-alcoholic, they will say, honey, because they still have one, uh, <laughs> or sweetie, or whatever. Uh, sweetie, uh, I'm going to go out. I'm going to have three drinks, and I'll be home by nine. And do you know what happens? They go out, and they have three drinks, and they're home by nine. And their pants are dry. And they have, they have both their shoes. And it's their house with the person they're supposed to be with. You know what I mean? All I'm saying is I don't relate, you know? And, the, and here's the thing. What we're talking about is this abnormal reaction, this physical allergy. And then if you're not sure, man, I'm not sure if I have this physical allergy. Sometimes it, it just looks like I changed my mind. It just looks like three drinks in and I'm saying, F it, I'm a, I'm a go. I'm going to get drunk. I changed my mind. Here is a way, a surefire way to tell. Now, you still might have the allergy if you don't relate to this. That's okay. But a surefire way to tell whether or not we have the physical allergy. 
We can do a show of hands or not. You guys don't have to participate. It's a little like audience participate. It's a little much. Um, but has anyone here ever experienced that thing? You know, we're drinking at a party and then everyone like goes to bed or goes home or couples up and makes their different life decisions. You know what I mean? And then you go around and you play bottom beer roulette. If you're not sure what bottom beer roulette is, is we're finishing off their drinks and avoiding the cigarette butts. And here's the, I, I will just say, if you finish off the one with the butts, you definitely have the allergy. Like, yeah. I didn't, I didn't. Still got the allergy, right? And so what would happen is I would drink in this way. And as a result of drinking in this way, I would do things I never wanted to do. I would hurt people in ways I never wanted to hurt. My life became one that was absolutely unrecognizable to me. I would come to with guilt and shame and remorse and regret. I became somebody I could not look in the mirror. And I had a feeling that maybe, just maybe, alcohol might have something to do with it. And I would say, that's it. That's it. I'm never going to drink again. And I want you to know that every single time I said that, I meant it. In the depth of who I was, I meant it. I did not want to do those things again. I did not want to hurt the people I was hurting again. I did not want to burn my life to the ground again. I did not want to be who I was. I did not want to do it again, and I meant it. And that had no effect long term. And see, what I found is I have this twofold abnormal reaction to sobriety. And so what happens is I, I get thrust into sobriety, and I don't seem to feel how other people feel sober. And actually, we can do another so show of hands. You don't have to participate again. Um, it's really, like, I do have stickers, so I can bribe participation, but I won't. I won't. I brought stickers. Yeah. They're good, huh? Yeah, I got one for you. Um, sorry. Uh, you'll also know that I definitely am really good at focus, and I definitely don't get distracted. Um, but see, what would happen for me is I would be thrust into sobriety. And I don't know about you guys. Has anyone in your life ever said, stop drinking, you'll feel better? Yeah. And they're right. But they don't know the way in which they're right. See, what happens is I stop drinking, I feel better. I feel pain better. I feel that depression where I can't even get out of bed better. You know, that anxiety where somebody's stabbing my shoulder blades. I feel that better. I feel that suicidal ideation better. I feel like I'm a, like I'm a raw, exposed nerve ending, and for some ungodly reason, the wind is blowing. I feel that better. If you ask me how I'm doing, I'll tell you, happy to be here, happy to be sober, I'll take 24, pass it sponsor, no, I don't need one, no, big book, no, thank you, right? Like, that, that's how I am. Now, keep in mind, that is not limited to alcoholics. There are human beings who are riddled with that, with that spiritual malady, that spiritual sickness. But you see, again, if that was the only thing that was abnormal about me, I would not be here. And the reason I would not be here is I would have ended my life. And I tried that a number of times in my life. And I share that because, because for me, I got to this point in my life where I felt where, where I had only two options. To take my life or to keep drinking. And I want you to know, if you're feeling like that today, that again, we have a solution. And it's not wishy-washy. It's not maybe. It's not, I don't know. It is, we have a solution. And we have precise directions to get you there. And you don't have to do it alone. But I didn't know what was wrong with me. 
And so I have this other abnormal reaction to sobriety, and it happens when I'm as sober as I am today, and my alcoholism is untreated. I will get a thought, and that thought will happen in my mind, and it will sound like a good idea. And that thought sounds a little something like, this time will be different. Got any this time will be different? <laughs> Nobody will ever know? Got any? Nobody will ever know? What about, I'll go out for three drinks? A little more reasonable, I'll go out for three days, I'll get it back together on Monday, right? <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes, sometimes my alcoholism has got a little bit of self-awareness. It's like, Paige, you're being miserable to everyone in your life. Why don't you take a drink or two? Take the edge off. You'll be nicer to everyone. And then my relapse becomes a public service. You're welcome. <laughs> By which I mean I won't be back around for the amends because I'm real sorry about the TV. That is my bad. Also, if you are not currently working with a sponsor, if you don't currently have a sponsor, my bad is not how we make amends in AA. Just want to point that out too. <laughs> Got a little quiet. I was a little worried. You guys were doing a my bad's amends. Uh, <laughs> but glad we got on board. All right. And see, sometimes, sometimes that insane thought looks like, F it, I'm going to kill myself anyways. F it, if you went through what I went through, you'd have to drink too. That's what it looks like. And that's the thing, is I didn't try everything there is to stay sober. But everything that I tried failed. I could not stay sober and not suicidal at the same time. And I would do it again and again, and again. And I want you to know, what happened for me is I had a step one experience. And I didn't even know that's what it was. My step one experience was when I, I had this deep and profound realization. It was not, that's it, I'm never going to drink again. My step one experience was, on my own power, I will drink again. My step one experience was that I would take another drink. Our relapse was inevitable and was imminent for an alcoholic of my type. I was going to drink, and there was nothing that I could do to stop it. No matter how much I wanted to stay sober, no matter how much I needed to stay sober, no matter all the people that I promised that I would stay sober, I knew I was going to drink again. And I was able to accept the hopelessness that is alcoholism. I was able to understand my real predicament. And that thrust me into the need for a solution. And a solution of depth and weight is what we have here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I see the steps on the wall. Not literally. But I would see them on the wall. I was like, where are they? Point to them. Uh, but I, was, I would see them on the wall. And I would do this thing. Now, again, I'm sure it's this thing that you lovely, wonderful people in Cambridge would never do. And it's called auditing the steps. And if you're wondering, it's very different, very different than doing the steps, right? It's different than reading the steps, different than talking about the steps, even giving my opinion on the steps. Uh, it is that one, some of that one, absolutely none of that. Ew, to my ex? Gross. No, and meditation? Are you kidding me? No, thank you, right? It's that. And I would do that. And what happened for me is I came up to that word God. And I came up to that barrier in the second step. And I want you to know, I'm sure this will be a shock to some of you, but I overthought and I overcomplicated the second step. And all I needed to believe, all I needed to believe was, is it possible that I wasn't so special that the miracle that had happened in your life couldn't happen in mine? 
See, I would come to rooms like this and see people like you, and I would see that you were happy and sober at the same time. I saw that you had something I did not have. You had that light on in your eyes. You could laugh. You could look each other in the eye in conversation. You could talk to each other. I did not have that. And you said a God of your own understanding as the result of these 12 steps made that possible for you. And all I needed to believe was, is it possible there's a power greater than myself? And is it possible that that power could relieve from me that insane thought that I have when I'm as sober as I am today and my alcoholism is untreated that tells me to take a drink? Is it possible? And I could not deny the miracle that was going on in your life, but I came with these old ideas. I came with these preconceived notions. I came, and I won't talk about all my barriers to the belief of the power of God because there was a lot and I overthought it. But the one I do want to talk about is I came to AA with some stuff. Some of that pain, some of the stuff that had happened when, when I was younger, some of the stuff that happened in my drinking. And even when I got sober, there was some stuff that happened. And I had that thought of if there was a God, why did this happen to me? Because I would get stuck in the whys. Hopefully we don't have too many people in the whys, but we got any whys? Like, why? You know, it's like a toddler. Why? Why? You know? God bless my sponsors. You know, the ones I've had over the years. Why? Um, right? I would get stuck in the whys. And I want you to know, my experiences, it's a little like being lost in the desert. And if you're in the desert, you know, running out of food, running out of water, Around this time in the desert, it starts to get cold. There's a chill in the air. Now I'm in the middle of the desert, and I know I'm going to die out here. And for some reason, some miracle, I am given a map. I am given a way out. In that moment, it is far more important that I use a map to get out of the desert than how I pontificate with how I got in there in the first place. And I want to pontificate. And I also want you to know, like, I, I don't see if you, the wheels, they don't do well in sand. So it would be a real mystery how I got to a desert. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but what happened for me is I took God to my fourth step. And I took those things that had happened to my fourth step. And I took that through. And as I began to do inventory, I began to get freedom from them. And I began to see things in a new way. And when I did that fifth step, I began to see that I was not alone. And as I went out to make amends, that guilt and that shame began to fall from me. But it wasn't until I sat down with another alcoholic, eyeball to eyeball, face to face with this book, these directions and a power greater than myself, that my why was answered. See, I can't sit here today and answer your why. But I can tell you the answer that I found. And the why for me, why did these things happen? Why did I go through this? Why did I have to survive that? Why am I an alcoholic? The answer is I get to sit down with you and I get to say, yes, me too. Yes, me too, I drank like that. Yes, me too, I felt that way. Yes, me too, I experienced that. And here is how I got freedom from it. And one of the most powerful things is in Alcoholics Anonymous, my dark past, based on my willingness to face and rectify my errors and convert them into assets, becomes my principal asset. The worst things I have ever done, the worst things that have ever happened to me, becomes gifts and blessings that I can use to help another alcoholic not die from this horrific illness. Only in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, what do I have to offer you? I have my experience, and of course my experience with my alcoholism in the steps. 
But man, with the more that I've experienced in life and gone through and made it through sober with the power of God, the more I have to offer you. That's what we have. And it's only here where those things that I said I would never tell a soul, I could share freely from this podium if it would help someone. It's only here. And that's the freedom that's on offer. It's not just, it's, man, if I'm holding on to don't drink, go to meetings. Man, I'm missing the gifts. I'm missing the miracles that are available. We have a big promise. Well, many promises, but like we put them on a pot. It's a big one, you know? Like there is a solution. And this thing works with all those things that I don't think it could ever work for. And see, when I got here, I sold the power of Alcoholics Anonymous short. I sold the power of God short. But you know what I never once did? I never once sold the power of alcohol short. Not once did I come to, to rum, to vodka. Not once did I come to Colt 45. And I, you can tell what type of drinker I was. Classy. Uh, not once. Not once did I come to booze and sell the power of alcohol short. Did I not think alcohol could not relieve me of the pain that I was in, could not solve the problem that I was experiencing? Not once. And so I'm reminded here never to sell the power of the God of my understanding short. Never to sell the power of Alcoholics Anonymous short. And so here's my experience. If, if, you're not, if you're not sure if you have the faith to do these steps, to live this way of life, to get into the book with a sponsor, to I, I have another show of hands. Now, I want you to know, I believe in our singleness of purpose. This is not a step one proposition. This is a step two proposition. Anyone here ever taken a floor pill? If you're not sure what that is, that is a pill that you found on the floor. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. If you found that pill on the floor in a car, oh, girl, you can do an inventory. That ain't no thing, you know? You have faith, right? And see, it is not that I lacked faith. It is that where I lacked my intention. See, and all I needed to believe was that it was possible. And the metaphor that I so commonly use is in step one. It is like if I were to stay in Calgary, Alberta, I was going to drink again and I was going to die. And in step two, all I needed to believe was that Cambridge existed. That's it. Could you imagine the unmitigated goal if like Mary Jane calls me up and I'm like, sorry, sorry, sorry. no, Cambridge, it's not real. And she's like, I live here. You know, I got sponsees. And like, live here. I, this is, it's real. I live here. No, no, no. I don't, I just don't believe in it. It doesn't, no. Cambridge, not for me, right? And what I'm doing in that third step is I'm making a decision to go to Cambridge. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to go there. Now, you'll notice it took a little bit to get there. See, I was asked to come out, and it was absolutely an honor and a privilege, but I wasn't there. I was in Calgary, Alberta. See, the third step is ultimately a decision to work these steps as a way of life, like my life depends on it because it does. But, an, but a decision that is not followed up by action gets me nowhere. See, what I had to do was I had to make sure my identification was in order. We had to book a plane ticket. I had to get to the airport. I had to get through security. I had to get to my gate. I had to get on the plane. It was a direct flight. That was lovely. Uh, I had to land in, in uh, Kitchener, Water, Kitchener Waterloo. I had to, you know, sponsee picked me up. Delightful. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> we had to, we had to uh, go. We, we were on the 401 for a bit. We were doing some Ontario sightseeing, you know, when you're on the 401 and in traffic. Sightseeing. It was great. <laughs> and only when we crossed into Cambridge were we, was I there. 
And that's what the third step is. I'm deciding to take the action, but I haven't gotten there yet. What happens for me, and I'm, I'm just aware of the time, so I'm going to dive into that fourth step because that's what we're called to do, to dive into step four, into this way of life. Now, what I have is a metaphor, and you guys do not have to like this metaphor. You don't have to pick up what I'm throwing down. But the metaphor I got is in the depth of my soul, there is a spiritual house. And I want you to know the house is good. And if you're like, okay, I'm picking up what she's throwing down. I'll have a spiritual house. I'm here for that. What I want you to know is that your house is good. Your house is worthy. Your house is valuable. Your house was created by the most incredible, wonderful, capital D, capital A, divine architect. It is a good house. It is a worthy house. It is a deserving house. Here's my problem, not yours, my problem is I'm a bit of a hoarder, you know what I mean? Like a spiritual hoarder. I don't, TLC, bring in the cameras. Like, I am a hoarder, it is bad. Again, I'm not saying you, I'm saying me. So I got these things. Again, I'm sure you, none of you guys were like, uh, they're called resentments. Um, and my resentments are like newspapers that are decades old. I know I've been alive for decades, uh, not just the one, I'm not 10, um, but like decades old. And they're piled all the way from floor to ceiling. And what happens is when those, when those resentments, when those newspapers are piled up all the way to floor to ceiling, it blocks out the windows and it blocks out the light. And I'm alone in that house in darkness. And then I, I know you guys definitely don't relate, but I got these things called fears. And my fears are like my empty bottles and cans. See, I can't step in them and I can't stand on them without them clattering and uh, making all this noise and sounding bigger and louder than they really are. And I'm stuck in fear. See, I can't see where I step. I can't see where I move, but it's all around me. And it sounds bigger than it is. Now, I know you guys definitely don't relate to this. This is just me. I got some sex conduct. It's a little like the dead cats behind a freezer. You know what I mean? You know they're there. You can smell them. Don't want to look at them. Also, I want to be very clear, no cats were harmed in the making of this metaphor. It is very simply a spiritual metaphor. All cats are fine. Just really what? They're okay. Yeah. Uh, and so what am I doing in that fourth step? See, in that fourth step, I'm not sitting around talking about what a garbage house I live in. No, what I'm doing is I'm taking bags and I'm taking boxes and I'm going into that house. And what I do is I start pulling down those newspapers. And once you know, I have a real good look at them. And for the first time, I see the information was wrong the whole time. See, I thought the information said, you're wrong. You're the jerk. Turns out, I'm wrong. I'm the jerk. And there is freedom in that. There is no freedom in being right. I have found out. Now, if you are new and you hear that, and you're like, ew, who invited the Calgarian? It was a group conscious decision. Um, and I get you. I get you. It was like, I, I, th that sounds absurd. What do you mean there's no freedom in being right? But there's only freedom in being wrong. Because I can go out and then set it right and let it go. That's what I get to do. And so I see that I was the jerk the whole time. But what happens is I pull down those newspapers and that light begins to come into that house. One of the just things that I love is the metaphor of God as light. And we see that throughout our book. 
You know, one of the most powerful sentences that has nothing but everything to do with step seven is I must turn in all things to the Father of light who presides over us all. Turning in all things to this power. I just love the metaphor of God as light because light is not what I see. Light is the way in which I see. See, we turn off the lights in this room and this whole room changes and yet nothing has changed. We turn the lights back on and everything has changed. As a result of a rigorous application of these steps, especially the fourth step, that's where that change started to happen for me. Everything changed and yet nothing changed. We can, we can test this. I don't know about anyone else. Anyone else? Their uh, childhood get better? <laughs> Their family get better? Their spouse or partner get better? The drivers on the 401 get better? Those jerks on the 407 with a transponder, they get better? Right? I know a little bit of Ontario stuff. I will use what I got. Right? They get better. They didn't change. But I changed and how I saw them change. And as a result of relying on that light, I see how I can clean up that fear. If I rely on that light, I never have to step and stand in that fear ever again. Then I deal with the cats. And I come up with an ideal, a sane, sound sex ideal, so I can be a responsible, spiritual pet owner in the future. That's what we're doing. <laughs> and then, in the fifth step, when I sit down with God and another human being, what I am doing is I'm getting all of that garbage out of the house. And I take it to the curb. And step six and, about, and step seven is all about becoming willing and then asking for the garbage men to come and take it away. I'm not in defect removal. I don't know about you, in step three, I got fired from the management position of my life. Defect removal is upper management. And man, if, my, if your life looked like mine, you ought to be fired. You know what I mean? Like if I ran like my life, anything as poorly as I manage my life, like if I manage like a blockbuster, I use blockbuster because it's real low stakes. No one's expecting like a resurgence, you know what I mean? If I managed a blockbuster as poorly as I manage my life, it's on fire, I ought to be fired. You know what I mean? Defect removal is none of my business. My business is willingness. That is my job. And what, I, what my job is, how do I demonstrate that willingness? I seek to do God's will. And I don't always know what it is, but I always know that if it is of love and service, I'm probably on the right track. And then what happens for me is I go out and I set right my amends. I set my right my wrongs. And you know, it talks about how the alcoholic is like a tornado roaring, roaring our way through the lives of others. I had the privilege of going down to South Dakota. In South Dakota, the bison, the buffalo is a big symbol uh, in that state. And there's the story of the buffalo. If you've ever seen a buffalo, the buffalo has all the, all the fur and all the hair on the front of their body. And the buffalo, what they do is when a big storm comes in, they meet that storm and they walk through it. And that cuts that storm in half. And the other animals, they see that storm and they run away. And as they run away from that storm, that elongates the storm. It makes it last longer. And what I'm doing in step nine is I'm being the buffalo. I'm facing those things that I want to run away from. That's, oh, let's be real, that's the step I'm afraid to do. That's the step I don't want to do. I'm afraid that if I make, I'm afraid if I make amends to my mom, she's going to never talk to me again. We have a delightful relationship. That's not logical, but that's my fear. And the thing is, in amends, it talks about in nine cases out of 10, the unexpected happens. You know what's unexpected for us? It goes well, <laughs> right? That's what I'm bringing, and it goes well. Nine cases out of 10, unexpected. Who would have thought it, right? I'm not as bad as I think I am. But I, I go and I be the buffalo and I cut that storm in half. And when did those step nine promises happen? About halfway through our amends. 
that light begins to really shine. That freedom we begin to truly and deeply experience. You know, and the thing is, the difference between me and the buffalo is that I am also the storm. I am also the storm. And I, that is my wreckage. But when I get to create, go out and create uh, and, and reconcile and repair and restore those relationships, I get to live in freedom. And so in the, in the house metaphor, see, I have this spiritual house. I got to keep it clean. I got to keep it clean in step 10, 11, and 12. I got to keep doing this thing. And I got to keep it clean for three reasons. The first reason I got to keep my house clean is, I don't know if you saw it. It was a mess when I got here. Like, if it ever gets as bad as it did when I got here, I will drink again. Like, the neighbors could smell it. You know what I mean? Like, thank God I wasn't on, like, a spiritual HOA. You know what I mean? Like, the homeowners associate. The weeds were not whacked. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's bad. Right? So, and the second reason, the second reason I need to continue to keep my house clean is because my life depends on helping you. See, my life as a recovered alcoholic depends on showing you precisely how you can recover. And I cannot do that effectively and I cannot do that efficiently if I do not have practice cleaning my own house. I need to know how to use those tools. They need to be sharp in my hand so that I can help you experience the freedom that's on offer. See, my job, and I, I can get loud, I was worried I'd be too loud for that thing, but my job is not to shout at you. Our book tells me that my job is for my deportment to shout at you. How I live my life, how I show up to life, that is what it is to shout at you that I have a real answer. And I cannot do that if I'm not keeping my house clean. The third reason I got to keep my house clean is because it turns out I got a roommate, right? In our book, it talks about the central fact of our lives being the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way that is indeed miraculous. There's another way to read that, that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And either way, one of the places in which God resides is in my heart. And if I continue to keep that house clean, I get to continue to know this God that I did not like, I did not believe in, I was resentful towards when I got here, but has proved to be incredibly loving and powerful in my life and continues to do for me that which I could not do for myself. I want to share a story about steps 10, 11, and 12, and how steps 10, 11, and 12 have practically worked in my life. And it's also, it's also, it's also a story of a bird. For those, for those that have like, yeah, I know it's the birds. Uh, see what, what happened? It's like outside of the church, there were birds, and I was like, oh, birds. Like, I, again, the attention, I definitely have really good attention. I'm really good at focusing. I don't ever go on tangents. Anywho, back to what I was saying. <laughs> It's the story of a bird. And it's the story of a bird, but it's also the story of our second, second step proposition, which God is everything or else God is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What is our choice to be? And it's this bird that we have in Calgary. It's called the Northern Flicker. And if you look at this bird, it's, it's just a little woodpecker, a little ground pecker. It's a gray bird. It's got like some spots on it, gray brown, nothing to look at. But when it begins to take flight, its wings open up and it is the most beautiful, vibrant orange. And that reminds me of the alcoholic working these steps and beginning to take flight. That was already there, but I had to open up to experience it. I had to do this to experience it. And so what happened for me is a number of years ago, I was working with a sponsor, not a number, I just can't count. <laughs> um, but a little while ago, I was working with the sponsee and we had, you guys, you know how you guys have autumn? 
I'm like, seasons? Yeah, we don't. <laughs> and it was like September, October, and it was delightful. I'm like, we didn't even have snow yet. You know what I mean? It was lovely. So we were outside, and we were working outside, and I live by the river, and, and my sponsee and I, whenever we would, would meet together, we would always start with a prayer. And because that's, I, I, that's how I work with sponsees. We invite the God of our understanding in. And we started to hear this call of this bird, and he, he points out that's a, that's a northern flicker. And then what happened is the more we would meet, the more we would hear, the more we would see this little bird, this northern flicker. And it became for us a symbol of God's presence. So we'd see this bird and be like, ah, God's here. Now I want you to know, I know, I know I'm weird. I know I'm abnormal, all the ways that I'm abnormal. I didn't plan out to be a weird bird person. I do not think that God is in the bird, but also I do. Because God is everything or else God is nothing. And see, what happens, we were talking about this on, on the drive over. What happens is when I see a bird, what it does for me is it brings my attention to this present moment. And where is God? God is in this present moment. Right? It talks about in our book that the utopia is here and now. Here and now. This is one of the places in which God can be found now. And it just brings my attention back to now, where God is. And so we were meeting, and he was going to go off on a, on like a 10-month trip to Thailand and live his best life, and we were just wrapping up. We would knocked off some amends, and we were finishing some of the later chapters, and, and we were sitting in this parking lot in his car, and we see this northern flicker, and it's this beautiful, like again, the red shaft, so this beautiful, vibrant orange. And he, he has this, he's like, we should, we should maybe look up what this means. You know what I mean? We should... Look, you know, because like an owl can mean like wisdom or death, or you know what I mean? There's some symbologies. Like, let's look it up. And so he goes and he opens his phone and he goes to look it up, and it's, it's a number comes in and it's a private number. And I'm like, yeah, answer it. It's cool. Just answer it. And he's, he answers it. And it is the police officer who saved his life. See, God is everything, or else God is nothing. And God is in that moment. And last spring, um, Last spring, what I experienced, uh, I sat with my uncle as he, as he died. I sat with him for nine days as he died in the hospital. And I, I went with him uh, to the emergency room, and, and we found out he, he had days. And I sat with him in the hospital. We, we, when somebody's in that state, they put, them, uh, they put them in a bit of a private room. And it was overlooking, see, I live in Calgary. You can see the Rocky Mountains. It was overlooking the, the Glenmore Reservoir, this beautiful body of water. And it was overlooking the, the Rocky Mountains. And we're there, I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes, not even, and a northern flicker flies by. And I want you to know that was probably one of the most difficult experiences of my life, and I've had a lot of difficult experiences. I sat with him as he died, and he did not die a peaceful death. There were moments, there were like days where he would be crying out in pain every 20 minutes. Every 20 minutes I would be awoken to the sound of help, help, help. That is what I would hear. And I couldn't do anything to alleviate his pain. And I would see again a northern flicker. And there was a whole, I'm going to summarize this story, but to how it kind of ties in with 10, 11, 12, I'm sitting in that hospital. And I am hopeless and I am powerless over the suffering of a loved one. And there is nothing that I can do to alleviate it other than be present and continue to do my best to ask for help for him. And I would get a call. And I couldn't take calls because you know when somebody's in the final stages of dying, too much noise um, exacerbates a lot of the symptoms. 
but I would re what would happen for me is I would receive the 10 step calls of my sponsees and we'd do it over text. And one of the things is I'm a big believer that imperfect spiritual action is better than no spiritual action. Oh, it should be a phone call. Well, it was better than nothing. And I got to get out of self and out of that moment and think about somebody else. And, and then there was a point where I was sleeping on the floor and he was crying out and there was nothing I could do and it was agony. And I was able to go and, and get off the unit for, for not even like 10 minutes to make a phone call, to make my own 10-step call. You know, and, and I sat with him, and I sat with him as he took his last breath. And I was waiting. I thought there would be paperwork because it seems like that would be a thing. And I was waiting for them to come in and bring the paperwork. As they, and I sat with him as they washed his body, and they prepared him, and they put him, put him um, in the bag, and they took him away. I sat with him. And I was waiting for the paperwork, and I was alone in that room. And, and we had, over the course of the days, we had to draw the, the shade so we couldn't have the window, the view of the window, because the light was too stimulating. It was making the hallucinations worse. I just felt this need to open the window. And I opened the window just to get some light, just to kind of, I don't even know, just to process, I don't know. And not even five, minute, five minutes later, a northern flicker flies by. See, God is everything or God is nothing. God is in those moments of pure grace, and God has been in those moments of horror. And you might say, if you, how can you say God was in that? Where could God be in the horror and the suffering? And I can answer in my heart, because I'm not a human being that does well without sleep. I'm not a human being that does well in those conditions. To be woken up every 20 minutes to show up, and not for a moment did I have an inch of resentment. Not for a moment did I show up with anything less than love in my heart. There were times where the hallucinations were getting bad and he's like, I think you're poisoning my food. And not for a moment was I hurt or upset. That is not my power. I'm a fall down, pissing my pants, drunk, smoking crack behind a dumpster. That is who I am. And I get to show up with love and tolerance that is not my own. God is everything or else God is nothing. And... I have a knack for overdoing things. Uh, so I had a sponsee that was uh, scheduled. And I figured, why don't, we keep, why don't we keep our appointment, right? Oh, wait, I'm aware of the time. I'll wrap up with this. Sorry, guys. So sorry. Uh, I had, uh, I, what happened for me is I, I had an appointment with a sponsee. And I'm, I'm big on being transparent with my sponsees. I'm not going to dump, but I'm going to let you know where I'm at. And we sat down. And I said, hey, just so you, like, she had already known what was going on. Hey, just so you know, my uncle, I found out it was, I thought it was two days. No, it was the next day, a little intense. But I sat down with her and, and I was like, just so you know, here's what's going on. So I might be a little off. And she's like, just so you know, I might be a little off. My partner's mother was just, take, was just airlifted to the hospital and she's in the ICU. She's in a coma and they don't know if she's going to make it. And so we started with a prayer. And I was like, what do you want? Do you want to keep going in the work? And she's like, yeah, I got to do the work. I got to get my mind off it. So we do the work. And, and near the end of her appointment, or our appointment together, she's like, man, I just wish I knew what he needed. I just wish I knew what he needed. Because he was there waiting, waiting for his mom. And I'm like, I know. I know what he needs. I know what he probably forgot. I know what he wouldn't have thought to grab. I know. I was just there. And see, what I have come to find out is when I live 
in the sunlight of the Spirit. And when I seek God's will, I live in the economy of grace. See, on my own power, I don't have that economy. On my own power, on my own will, I have the economy of if you do something nice for me, I'll do something nice for you. Or I'll do something nice for you, but it comes with strings. This uncommunicated contract, I need you to like me, I need you to think well of me, I need you to validate me, I need you to do this for me. If you change, then I'll do this. That is the economy I live in. But I don't live in that world when I work these steps and I am connected with a power greater than myself. I live in the economy of grace. And what that looks like, it is, it is abundant and nothing is wasted. See, I think I know what my life needs to look like. I think I know how things should be. But when I'm in the economy of grace, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. It all gets used. After that period, I, I had a sponsee whose, whose lifelong friend was in the ICU, and my experience was used. I found out an, an ex had passed away, and 30 minutes later, I'm sitting with the sponsee and we're doing sex conduct. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. And I dove into this work, and I want you to know, and, and I, this is the, the biggest lie in AA. I'll end on this, you know. <laughs> what I want you to know is I dove in and I was doing the deal. See, I don't miss daily prayer, I don't miss daily meditation, I don't miss evening review. That's what got me through those nine days. The, the work that I had done up to that point to deepen and develop the relationship with God. Those daily disciplines got me through and I didn't waver on those after. I continued that work, I continued this way of life, I continued working with others and I was okay, and I was okay. Like I wasn't good, I was taking time to try to process, I was taking time to work through it and I was okay, and I was okay, and I was okay, and then I wasn't okay. I wasn't okay. It hit, it hit, and there was nothing that I could do. The grief and the trauma and it was on me and I couldn't get free of it. See, most of my problems, I know they're self-created because I'll think my way into them. You know, a beautiful sunny day, I will think my way into suicidal ideation. Like, I can do that. You leave me unattended, I got it. But it was on me. And I was throwing everything that I could at it and nothing would leave. And see, I want to show up as little Miss AA. I want to show up as little Miss Perfect. I, I want to be, I want to be the, you know, gold star AA. And I couldn't do it in the same way that I was. I had to be really transparent, like, dude, I, I'm, I'm not okay, I can't sleep. I, I'm have, I have this terror and this dread that is on me and I can't escape it. And I wasn't that, maybe I was, my small will tell you whether I was or not, I don't remember. Uh, it was a bit of a haze. Um, but I would show up and I couldn't show up in the way that I wanted to show up. And nothing was working. But I continued to take the actions. And then it hit me then maybe my responsibility is not to get over this, not to work through this, but maybe my responsibility is to be present to this and to see what is working, what is not working, and just be present to what I am going through because, again, I don't live in my economy. If I don't like this, I don't want this, this doesn't look good on me. I live in the economy of grace, and I know whatever it is that I go through, if I go through it God in hand, and really myself in God's hands, I will be able to use it to help another alcoholic. And so my hope and my prayer that today is that I have been of help and I have been of use. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today.